God, our Father, we worship you this morning, and we pray that by your, your spirit, you would come and speak, minister to our souls, our hearts, our minds, and breathe upon us your breath of life, that we might be more alive and aware of your love as we encounter you in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Be seated. In our study of the prologue of John's gospel, we have been introduced to the word who was with God and the word who was God. The word in whom was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines or shines on in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Next in verses 6 through 8, last week we were introduced to the witness, to John the Baptist. The one who was not the light but pointed to the light that many might believe. And like John the Baptist, we saw that we too are sent as witnesses often into circumstances that we would not choose in order that others might believe. We are living in the midst of darkness, pointing to the light that others might see the light. And as we focus during the season of Advent, we know that this light is coming back one day and will flood the world. This is a glorious and meaningful mission, but not one without its cost and challenges as it was for John the Baptist. Today we're turning to verses 9 through 13 and we're considering what happens when this word, the true light, as he is called in verse 9, comes into the world more fully. And we might think, well surely when the word who is the true light comes into the world there will be great joy and welcome, but that's not in fact what we see. The tragedy of human sin is that there is a different response. There is a lack of recognition and a rejection. And that's the tragic story of verses 9 through 11. But that is not the only response. Thanks be to God. Verses 12 through 13, uh, we read of a reception, a different story, of those who believe and by believing become children of God through the miracle of divine grace. That is the glorious and brilliant story. And we'll consider both of these responses together this morning. There is the darkness, the story of human sin. And then there is the brilliance, the story of God's marvelous grace and power. So that's what we want to explore together this morning. So first, the tragedy. We start with verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And it's this that sets the stage for the reactions The true light is coming. How will people respond? What are we to make of the fact that John says this true light gives light to everyone? Some want to say that this means that redemption will be had by all. But I think it's fair to say that the rest of the Gospel of John and and the New Testament do not bear this out. There are clearly those who reject the light and who remain in darkness. With Calvin and many others, I do think it's best to understand verse 9 as a reference to general revelation. To the witness to God that we find in the creation externally with the beauty, power, diversity, and intricacy of creation. As well as internally in our own hearts and minds with our sense of right and wrong, what we call our conscience. A sense of justice, a longing for beauty and for relationship. We are, after all, made in the image of God. And in these ways, the word gives light to everyone. The world around us is not silent, but it speaks of God. Psalm 19 says this 
Beautifully, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Most of us, I'm sure, have experienced a moment where that is abundantly clear as we look upon God's beautiful creation while gazing on a glorious sunset in the evening or sitting on the beach in the early morning, looking over a rugged mountain view or being mesmerized by a waterfall or just overwhelmed by the power of a thunderstorm. In all these ways, God's creation speaks of his power and glory, and it continues to do so even into this age. Gerard Manley Hopkins writes about this in a poem which he began the world is charged with the grandeur of God. In that poem, he is writing about the external reality of creation, but I think we'd be fair to add the internal realities of human beings, of our minds and hearts, which are also charged with God's grandeur as well. So the words of the Belgic Confession and from Article 2, written in 1561, say this. We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power, and his divinity. All these things are enough to convict humans and to leave them without excuse. Yet this testimony, this general witness, this presence, both external and internal, of the true light in the world does not adequately lead us to God. And that's what verse 10 tells us in the prologue, where John begins to narrate the tragic story of human sin. The true light was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, John says, the world did not know him. The external and internal presence of the true light in the world did not lead human beings to God. Paul writes about this in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what John means by the world did not know him. Though the light was everywhere, though the true light was giving light to everyone, we did not know him. We've actually already been introduced to this reality in John's prologue in verse 5, when suddenly the light is said to be shining on in the darkness. What is this darkness? It is the world rejecting its creator, the world in rebellion from its maker, the world in its autonomy and independence, building a tower to achieve satisfaction and security and significance outside of God. We have worshipped the creature over the creator. And more often than not, this means that we worship ourselves. Edward Dorr Griffin, in his Park Street Lectures from 1813, he was the first pastor of Park Street Church from 1811 to 1815. In those lectures, he talks about the great root of sin being inordinate self-love. Inordinate self-love. It is this about which Augustine writes in the City of God, book 14. Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter, in the Lord. 
this love of self, this root of selfishness, is the same manifestation of sin in the human heart that John writes about here. It has displaced our proper supreme love of God and in so doing has blinded us to God. The world did not know him, John says in verse 10. Scripture speaks regularly of our understanding of, and our minds being darkened. Sin affects our ability to know, what we call the noetic effects of sin. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Our minds are, are blinded by the reality of evil, and we gladly participate in this blinding. For to acknowledge God means to give up our supreme love of self. We know that to acknowledge God means authority and it means accountability to him. So we suppress the light in creation. In our sin, we invent conceptions of God. Atheists say there's no God. Pantheists say that everything is God. Polytheists say there are many gods. And all of these enable us to keep our self-rule and supreme self-love. They keep us from having to yield to the one true God who is our maker. We remain in this state unmoved by his light. In Boston, of all places, we think about the ability and the brilliance of the human mind. We are surrounded by institutions of what we call higher learning. We are thinking our way toward artificial intelligence and the cure of cancer. But all the while, more often than not, we remain ignorant of our maker. We have great capacity for thought and for reason, but we did not know him. Sin has trapped us. It has left us blind to the signs all around us. Or if not blind, at least not moved by them. We're like the person who gets off the tee. Not sure if this has happened to you. It certainly happened to me. And is mobbed by canvassers, passing out pamphlets and flyers to push their cause. And yet we brush them all aside, keeping focused on where we're going. In a hurry, we move by. Only in this case, the canvasser is God himself. And he is standing there saying, look at my creation. Look at all that I have made. Look at your own hearts and minds. Look at me and you will see. Look at all these things and they will point you to me. But we press on in a hurry, content in our self-love, and shrug him to the side. Calvin writes, In vain for us, therefore, does creation exhibit so many bright lamps lightened up to show for the glory of its author. Though they may beam upon us from every quarter, they are altogether insufficient of themselves to lead us into the right path. End quote. The insufficiency of creation's lamps is accentuated by sin, of course, for we suppress what they close, so clearly show us about God and his power. The world did not know him. This is the tragedy. But the tragedy gets worse in verse 11. Because we read next that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The word, the sun, the true light enters in in a deeper way beyond general revelation. Beyond even the special revelation of the prophets in the Old Testament. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. This Christological revelation that is direct and not mediated. He comes in. Yet his own people did not receive him. There are two his owns here. The first one is neuter. And it's most likely his own stuff. 
into the world. He came into his own, his own world. And his own, the next one is masculine, which likely means people, which is why it's added in the ESV. His own people did not receive him. Some think that that means humanity, and it could mean that, because all humanity are his own, his own people. But I think it's better to take this, as most do, with his own people, meaning the Jewish people, the Israelites, God's special people, the ones who were waiting for his coming and his return, longing for him to restore all things. He came even to them and they did not receive him. This is the tragedy of all tragedies. It's so much more tragic. It's amazing that God doesn't take our inability to see him because of sin through the light of creation and just just, uh, wash his hands of us and be done. But instead in his grace, he takes a step further. Unlike us, if people, if people flick us, if they don't want to have anything to do with us, we tend to walk away. We tend not to engage. Not with God. He engages further. He comes to his own. But even in that greater grace, we remain blind. We don't see him. Even those to whom belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, as Paul says in Romans 9 verse 4, even they did not receive him. And that is the story of all four Gospels. That he came to his own people, but instead of reception, he received rejection. Which culminated in execution. John later writes about this in chapter 3. He says the light, verse 19, has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. We have two teenagers in our house right now. And I'm sure any of you who have had teenagers in your home uh, recognize just how late teenagers can sleep in they have some you know special ability that uh, that they can sleep and sleep and often I'll go upstairs to wake up our two teenage girls and one of my techniques of course is to throw open the curtains and what happens what's the response you know what it is there's always a pulling of the covers over the face over the eyes a curling up in a ball and a pushing into the corner and that's a picture of our response to the light as we live in sin we don't want anything to do with him we like self-love we like ruling our own lives we want to hold on to these things and so instead of welcoming the light because our deeds are evil and when you hear that our deeds are evil I want you to hear supreme self-love we stay in the darkness and that is a rejection of one's own maker We were made through this one. And we will never know life or peace or rest. We will never know fulfillment. Until we belong to him. And the tragedy of sin and its power in our lives. Is that we will continue to turn away. Even when he steps toward us. Peter says it like this. To the Israelites and to the Jewish people in Acts 3 verses 14 and 15. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. You killed the one who made you. The one who gave you every breath that you breathe. We reject our creator and we still do. We reject the supreme love of God for supreme love of self. Thanks be to God, however, the story does not end here. This is a tragic story. It is the story of sin that John is narrating in verses 9, 10, and 11. But it doesn't end there. There's a glorious story that he begins to tell in verses 12 and 13. 
a story that has inspired music and poetry and extraordinary acts of love and sacrifice throughout the past 2,000 years, a story that is worthy of every superlative that we can throw at it and more beyond, the story that we will tell tonight through scripture and song in our lessons and carol service. This is the story of God's amazing grace, a grace that we can't explain and certainly do not deserve. There's wonderful moments in scripture where the word but plays such a key role. And this is one of them. Several years ago, my family and I were driving through North Carolina to visit Mandy's brother and his family. And we were memorizing Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 as a family in the car. Now, I, by saying this, I don't want you to get the wrong impression about our family. We are a normal family. And we struggle just as much as you do with life and everything else that people struggle with, raising children and seeking to love them well. But we were memorizing Ephesians 2. And the first three verses of Ephesians 2 are depressing. They're all about our natural state, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were by nature, Paul says, children of wrath. But then in the car at that moment, we had just come to verse 4. And verse 4 is one of these glorious moments in the New Testament. But God. Everything changes on this pivot point. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. It's amazing. And just as we had gotten to that point in the car, a car on the interstate drove by us. And I looked at the car and on the back bumper, there was a bumper sticker that said, but God. It was such a moment, a special moment, one of those special moments with a family where we were all just, wow, that was a message from God to us in that moment. And verse 12 in John's prologue is one of these amazing pivot points. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, so it's but God, he gave the right to become children of God. The rejection narrated in verses 10 and 11 of this prologue is not the only response. Thanks be to God. There is a different response. Some receive him. John says, some believe in his name and by his name, as elsewhere in scripture, we mean his person, his reality. They believe in his name and to those he gives the right or authority or power to become. And this is miracle of all miracles, children of God. There is a different response to the true light coming into the world. And this is a response not of rejection, but he characterizes it as reception. Those who received him, who believed in his name. He expands on what reception means. It means to believe. And this is that key word in John's gospel, which is, again, we looked a little bit at last week, is not just cognitive assent to his existence or even just an understanding of a system of doctrine. No, it is personal. It is entrusting oneself. It is yielding supreme self-love to now supremely love the one who made us all. That's what it means to believe. This reception, this belief, this is the response of the true light coming into the world and of his grace at work in the darkness of the world in ways that we cannot fully understand and comprehend and even explain. But this is what he's looking for as he comes into the world, this kind of reception and belief. What do we learn about those who received him? who believed in his name. We learn, of course, that they become children of God. He grants them the right or authority or power to become this. And we need to focus for a moment on that word become in verse 12. Because what that implies, what that means is that we were not yet that thing that we have become. To become implies a transformation. It implies being something new that you were not before. And that's what is going on. We have become something different, not by completing a course of study and getting a degree, 
though of course we will enter into the teaching of the apostles, to the, to the fellowship of the apostles' teaching, to the classroom. It is not by working ourselves up to a certain emotional state, though of course becoming a child of God will touch the heart and the emotions and will give us genuine peace and joy that will flow from out, out from within. We don't become by conforming our behavior to a certain set of patterns, though of course engaging in the true light, receiving the light means that we will be transformed from the inside out and begin to live a very different way that reflects our King. But we become, we are transformed by believing in his name. It is this simple reality of reception and of belief on which this entire transformation hinges. And we do then become something that we were not yet before. One of the things that this means, and it's important to be clear about this, is that not everyone is a child of God. Sometimes we hear that in just everyday discourse in our culture, in our world. We're all children of God, but that's actually not the biblical teaching. We are, in fact, all image bearers. We are all creatures of God. We've all been made in his image. We all have, therefore, inherent dignity and worth and capacity. But we are not all children of God. In fact, if we go back to Ephesians 2, what are we? We are by nature, Paul says, children of wrath that locked in sin, enslaved in sin. We are the rightful objects of God's righteous and just judgment upon the world, which is the flip side of his love for his creation. We are not, we are not all children of God. But the glory of the gospel is this, that in the Son, as we receive the Son, we become what we were not. We are transformed by his power and authority and the right that he gives to us to become children of God. And understand what an incredible privilege this is. This is a term of intimacy. It is a term of provision and of protection. It is a term of belonging. It is becoming part of the family and now having God as our father with his love and affection and power set upon us now and forever. As we watch good earthly fathers set their love and affection and protection upon their own children, so we're told here we become children of the one true God. And we are now brought into this intimacy of his family, into this relationship that has always existed between the Father and the Son. And we're brought in, of course, by our relation now to the Son, by the Spirit. We become a part of his family. I want you to understand there is no more exalted position for you or for me than this one to be a child of God I fear at times in the church that we become so familiar with this expression that it's lost its power and its profundity and its meaning in our lives I understand that in this moment in our history in our lives we are all living through very difficult times in the darkness it is not easy and for some of us this pandemic has meant significant heartache and turmoil and loss I want you to understand, even in the midst of this, that the glorious teaching of John 1 verse 12 is that you have become a child of God by the grace of God. And even in the midst of the dark world in which you find yourself or the circumstances that are so difficult, there is no greater privilege that could ever be bestowed upon you. Nothing could change in your circumstances that would bring something better than what God has already brought to you by his grace in his son, Jesus. You are a child of God. This is glorious, life-altering, and transforming. John seems to understand this in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 1. See, he says, what kind of love the Father has for us, 
that we should be called children of God. The love of the Father so beautifully expressed in bringing people woefully broken and blind in sin to receive his Son, to believe in his name and to become children of God. Such a great privilege. It also brings with it a great responsibility to bear the family likeness. And I would encourage you in reflecting upon this reality of being children of God to spend some time in 1 John 3 and 4 where John deals with these similar themes and shows us that what it means to be a child of God is that we are to walk in love as our Father is love. He says they're not children of God if they keep on practicing sin it's not that we don't sin. Of course we do. And 1 John 1, 1.8 makes that clear. But children of God bear the family likeness. They begin to walk out in the world and love, especially, he says in those chapters, love our brother, our brother and sister, those within the household of God. We, we love them as Jesus commands us, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. And we bear the likeness of our Father into one another's lives. It goes beyond, though, the church into the world. In Luke 6, Jesus says to be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. He is kind to the evil and the ungrateful. God pours out his mercies upon even his enemies. And Jesus calls us to an enemy love. This love that marks the family of God is to mark us as the children of God. And we are called to bear that family likeness into the world. There is no higher privilege for you or for me. Lastly, we come to what I would call the mechanics of this transformation. Jesus gives us the right or the authority to become children of God. And then in verse 13, John explains the mechanics. How are these children of God made? How do they come about? And he starts with three negatives. Not of blood. The Greek is actually plural. Not of bloods. And I think what John is doing here is to say this is not about one's descendants or one's pedigree. And in particular, this is not about being part of the Jewish family. No, many of the Jews of that day would have said as they said to Jesus in John chapter 8, we have Abraham as our father. Essentially, what else do we need? We're part of the lineage of Abraham. But remember, when the religious leaders come out to John the Baptist in Luke 3, he says to them, do not say that you have Abraham as your father, for I tell you, that from these stones, God could raise up children of Abraham. No, John says, this family is not produced by lineage, by genealogy, by pedigree. It's no longer connected to bloodlines, not of blood. Not of the will of the flesh, he says. And this is interpreted in a few ways in the commentaries, but I, I like attributing this to natural procreation. That is, Paul, John is saying, we don't become sons and daughters of the Father in the same way that we become sons and daughters of our earthly parents. In that case, we are born of the will of the flesh. A man and a woman get married. And the will of the flesh produces children. And this is beautiful and good. And what God designed for it to be. But John is saying, this is not how the family of God will be propagated throughout the world. It is not of the will of the flesh. It is not by natural childbirth. And then he says, it's not of the will of man. And here I think we're best to see this as John ruling out any kind of entry into the family of God from the efforts of men and women. Any kind of attaining the status of a child of God by our own efforts. We cannot become a child of God by educating ourselves into this family. 
We cannot rely upon scientific or technological progress to evolve us into this family. We can't rely upon all of our business acumen and business success and financial wealth and to get us into this family. And we can't rely upon our best religious efforts, our most ascetic practices and ideals, on being a good person and practicing justice. Nothing of the will of man can make us a child of God. What then does? John rules out these three things, but how does this verse end? Born of God, but of God. There we are with that but God again. And here we arrive at the precious doctrine in the New Testament of the new birth or regeneration or new creation. Whatever name we give to it, this is the most glorious of doctrines that it is God who brings life to the dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but it is God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, who made us alive together with Christ. Jesus will go on to teach this doctrine in a way that confounds the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3. Before Nicodemus can even ask Jesus a question, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say that one must be born of water and of the Spirit. This is about the new birth. The transformation, the new creation that comes about not by the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, nor by blood, but by God. By the power of God at work upon the human heart, the darkened human heart that is trapped in supreme self-love. God will work upon that heart by his grace, by his spirit brooding over the chaos of the heart and bringing about new life. And that is a miracle to which the gospel speaks again and again throughout the New Testament. No one can do this. No one can take credit for this. John is writing this to rule out any human contribution to the equation. We are so prone to want to take credit, but we cannot. It is God's will and God's will alone that is active and effective in this transformation. Ah, you might say, but we must believe, we must receive. And I would say, yes, that is in fact the biblical statement and truth. But that itself is a gift from God, as Ephesians 2 teaches us. So Luther will say, God creates faith the same way that he made the universe. He found nothing and made something. It is God who enables us to receive the light who overcomes the blindness and darkness of sin within our lives by his powerful grace where sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more. And there is a new family that is born into the world. A family that is awash in praise and worship and new life and new love. Because it knows that none of its existence depends upon its own strength or ingenuity or holiness or righteousness. But sheerly and wholly upon the grace of a God by whom we are born again into the spirit, into new life. This is the glory of the gospel. If you find yourself a child of this God on this day, if you know you have become what you once were not by his grace and mercy, if you find yourself illuminated by the great light who has entered into the world, then make no mistake about it that you are in this position solely because of his grace and mercy and his power. What a privilege to be a child of God, to be his son or his daughter, to be alive in the light of God. What wonder this ought to produce in us. What humility. What fervency. To share such great news with the world in darkness. There is rejection 
and there is reception. It is our relation to Jesus that is determinative. A little over six years ago, our family went, went out on one of our trips to Colorado, and we took our first backpacking trip as a family. Claire, our youngest, was just, a, just about three and a half years old, and we hiked about two miles into the mountains of Colorado to a fairly hidden lake off the main trail, set up our tent, stayed there for a few nights, and then came back. That was, that was it. Enjoyed beautiful views. And on one of those days, I left Claire and Mandy at the camp because Claire was so young and took off with our three older kids to climb up to the ridge that was above our campsite. And we scrambled up to the ridge, had a great time. The clouds weren't exactly favorable as they were coming over Mount Harvard and they were gray, so we didn't have long. But we got up to the ridge and I got to explain to my kids that this ridge was part of the continental divide. And that every little bit of water that fell on this side of the ridge would end up in the Pacific. And every little bit of water that fell on that side of the ridge would end up in the Atlantic. We were standing on the dividing line that ran right through our entire continent. Well, Jesus is that dividing line in the cosmos. Receive him and you land on one side. Reject him and you land on another. In Advent, we remember that he will come again. He came the first time not to judge or to condemn, but to rescue and to save. He will come the next time to sift and to separate. Oh, my prayer is that all of us this morning would receive him, would believe in his name, and would become children of God. Let's pray. God, our Father, that we can call you our Father is an amazing gift and privilege for which we thank you and we praise you. You have been so gracious and generous to rescue sinners like us and to take us from the darkness into the light and to take us from being orphans in the cosmos to being children of you, the creator of all. We worship you, we praise you. And we pray that your gospel would be shed abroad within our own hearts and through our lives and into our city and into our world. And that you would accompany, accompany it by your grace, your spirit, your power. That your family might increase until you return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.